Well, for several months now, Karen has been suggesting that we watch the film The Theory of Everything. It tells the story of the renowned physicist Stephen Hawking, his life's work, his crippling illness, and his marriage to his first wife, Jane. Now, I like movies and I like big ideas, but I've been kind of dragging my feet on this film. ALS is a tough disease. And I wasn't sure how I felt about an evening watching it wreak havoc on a man's body and life. But one night this week, I brought it home. And Karen was touched that I finally agreed to watch the film that she wanted to watch. And I was tempted for a moment just to leave it at that. <laughs> but I had to confess I was working on a sermon. And sure enough, we weren't three minutes into the film when I hit the pause button and ran for a pen and paper, which Karen has gotten used to over the years. In the opening scene, Hawking and Jane meet for the very first time at a college dance. They have their awkward first conversation. He introduces himself as a cosmologist. She introduces herself as an Anglican. When he seems amused at her faith in God, she asks... So what do cosmologists worship? And he answers, a single unifying equation that explains everything in the universe. Really, she says, what's the equation? That, he says, is the question. A single unifying equation that explains everything in the universe. Physicists are still searching for it. Philosophers, too, though they're probably looking for an idea more than an equation. We have learned so much about this universe in which we live, from the smallest particles of matter to the cosmic forces that spun it all into existence. But no one has yet been able to explain how or why it all hangs together. No theory, no equation, no big idea that makes sense of it all. Some suggest that such a theory doesn't exist. Hawking and others believe it's out there somewhere waiting to be discovered. Now we are in week three of our Rediscovering Jesus series. Today we are wrapping up our, our setup for that year-long journey through the scriptures. Next week we'll begin our journey in the Old Testament and begin finding traces of Jesus as old as time itself. But today, we want to answer the third and final question that's going to frame this year's journey. The first question we asked two weeks ago, who then is this man? And we discovered that Jesus is the most provocative, compelling figure in human history. He cannot, will not, must not be ignored or put in a box. Two weeks ago, we asked the question, why did he come? And we discovered that Jesus' life and message was energized by a grand, compelling mission to seek and save the lost. Or as we put it, to look for lost people and show them the way home. But the final and perhaps most pivotal question that's framing this series is, what difference does it make? Why is Jesus so important that we would spend a whole year rediscovering him. What practical relevance does he have for our everyday lives and for this troubled world in which we love live? What difference does Jesus make? So to answer that question, I'd like to take you to one of the most compelling descriptions of Jesus found anywhere in the Bible. And interestingly, it's not found in one of the Gospels. 
And it's written by someone who never met Jesus in the flesh. And yet it's a portrait of Jesus that I believe can forever change the way you view the world and your life. In fact, it may explain everything in the universe. So let's go to the book of Colossians. It's found in your New Testament. Colossians is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in the city of Colossae. We'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Now as you're turning, I just want to call your attention for a moment to the title of the message, The Essential Jesus. I chose that title in part because it fits the text, as you'll see, but also because it points you toward a resource we'd like to make available to you for this series. The Essential Jesus is a devotional guide published by Scripture Union. That's the publishing house that makes the Encounter with God devotional guides that that many of us like to use. The Essential Jesus is a collection of 100 biblical texts about Jesus from Old and New Testament. It's organized into 20 chapters of five, five readings, so you can do it in 20 weeks and get through all 100 passages. So we're going to order some. We'll have them available next Sunday in all of our campuses. Uh, You can pick one up for a suggested donation and use it as a companion for the next 20 weeks. If you begin next week, it will take you right up to the season of Lent and kind of track along with where we are are headed. Let's begin now with the opening words of Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. I want to call your attention to that word image. In the Greek language, it's the word icon, which in English is icon, okay? (laughs) An icon is a sacred image. It's a visual representation of a spiritual figure or event. Now, these icons, these visual representations, these pictures, they can be very helpful, but none of them really are adequate to capture the richness and, and the fullness of any of these characters or any of these events. One of the challenges we had as we began putting this series together was what image would go with it. What logo would we use to brand the series? The, logical, the, the, the title came pretty easily, Rediscovering Jesus, but what image goes with that? Well, the logical answer seemed to be, well, an image of Jesus. But then we had to ask, well, which one would we use? There are certain images of Jesus that are familiar to us. The problem, of course, is that they're all too Western European. Jesus certainly didn't have fair skin and blue eyes and probably not flowing locks of brown hair. Now, thankfully, there are other images out there representing a variety of ethnicities and and mediums of art and times of history. Some of those images are comforting and familiar. Some of them are a little bit unusual and strange. Some of them are, are even disturbing. But none of them seem adequate. Each one reveals a dimension of his character, but each one seems too limiting, too narrow in its scope, too small in its vision to reveal all that Jesus was and is. I find it interesting that in the providence of God, Jesus didn't make his appearance in a time when photographs were available. Because if we had a photograph of Jesus, we would surely revere it in unhealthy and unhelpful ways. I read a story once about a, uh, a woman in Mexico who was fixing dinner for her family. And lo and behold, she looked into the pan in front of her and realized in, the, in this tortilla, she saw the face of Jesus. 
She told her friends, word began to spread soon. People were coming from hundreds of miles and lining up for days to see the holy tortilla with the face of Jesus. <laughs> so that's what we do with these things. And it's probably one of the reasons, one of the first commandments is don't make any graven earthly images because they're, they're all too small and too narrow. Instead, we are given, we're given words and phrases and stories that invite us to use our imaginations to picture Jesus, to see Jesus in ways that speak to us and yet are grounded in the Scripture. So in the end, we went with no picture at all of Jesus and these simple watercolors bleeding into one another. They're inviting us, inviting our imaginations to see Jesus in ways we've never seen him before. And that's what this passage is going to do for us. Now, I know we think of Paul as a great theologian, a great scholar, a great intellect. He's also, you're going to discover, a brilliant, talented artist. In this passage, Paul is painting a portrait of Jesus for us. I'd like, to ima- I'd like you to imagine this passage as a canvas and each of these words and phrases as brush strokes across that canvas. And taken together, They reveal to us an image of Jesus far more compelling and transformative than any we could possibly put onto a a paper or stained glass or sculpture. So let's consider again that first brushstroke. He is the image of the invisible God. Paul is telling us that Jesus is somehow the revelation, the manifestation of the invisible eternal God. Now, that, that word image would have deep resonance for the, the original readers of Paul's letter here. For the Jewish readers, they were used to hearing that word icon in association with, with the wisdom they read about in the Old Testament, in their scriptures. Wisdom that was often personified. Listen to these words from Proverbs chapter 8. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began. Whoever finds me, finds life. One of the intertestamental writings that we sometimes call the Apocrypha, in one of them, the actually, wisdom is actually described as the icon or image of God. And so Paul is saying to his Jewish readers, the wisdom that you have been seeking all these centuries has now come to earth in the person of Jesus. Now this word icon would also have deep resonance for the Gentile readers of this letter. The word icon was often used to describe the the logos of God, the divine reason that that is behind everything in the universe. Philo, the philosopher, used this word icon to describe the word of God. And so Paul is saying to his Greek readers, the the divine reason that you have been searching for all these centuries has now come to earth in the person of Jesus. And for the everyday readers of this letter, for those who were not philosophers and religious scholars, this word icon also meant something significant. The, the, the icon, that word was used to describe a, a physical description of somebody that was used in a legal document. So there's no photo IDs in the first century. And so if you have a legal agreement with someone you've never met before, you need some way of recognizing them when they show up in your life. 
And so these legal documents and contracts would include physical descriptions. Tall guy, brown hair, whatever, and that's who you'd know who to look for. And so Paul is saying here that the God you've been wanting to see all these centuries looks like this, looks like this man Jesus. So you can see what a rich word this is, how important this passage is going to be. So like visitors to an art gallery, let's just step back a little bit and take in this picture and see what it reveals. The next brush stroke is in verse 15b, the firstborn over all creation. Now at first reading, that could sound as though Paul is saying that Jesus was the first thing God created, but and, and that is how that verse is understood by some cultic groups and by some heresies down through the centuries. But if you look at how that word firstborn is used all through the Bible and in the culture of the day, it's telling us something different. That word firstborn was used in the Old Testament and in the language of the day to, uh, to refer to rank or status rather than chronology or birth order. The firstborn was the preeminent one in the family the one who acted as a representative of the entire family. Notice, he's not the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn over creation. He holds the place of ultimate esteem and honor in the entire universe. The next brushstroke reveals something else about Jesus. For by him, all things were created. Now, when Paul says all things, you know what he means? All things. He specifies things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, everything. Another one, in other words, the one known to us as Jesus of Nazareth was actually there at the very beginning of all things and was, in fact, the agent of creation. You remember the language of Genesis, let us make man in our image? Well, who is God the Father talking to? God the Son. And so if we want to imagine God the Father as the architect of creation, we might imagine God the Son as the, as the project manager. Now I realize I'm in trouble now with every theologian and builder in the room. So let's quickly move off that analogy and get to the next one, okay? Paul dips his brush in the palette and adds another stroke. All things were created by him and for him. So Jesus is not only the agent of creation who was there at the beginning, he's also the goal of creation who's going to be there at the end. In the same way that a castle is built by a king for the king, for him to inhabit, so the universe was created by Jesus and for Jesus so that he might fill it with his presence. And here's the really interesting thing. Scholars now are discovering that Genesis 1, the language of Genesis 1, is describing the building of a temple, as if the universe is a temple in which God is going to live. And in him, all things hold together. So Jesus is not only the one who set the universe in motion at the beginning and who will receive it at the end, he is also the one who sustains it every moment in between. He is the beginning and the end and the middle. He is the A and the Z and the K and the P and the T and all of it. And it was this phrase, in him all things hold together, that brought to my mind Stephen Hawking and his theory of everything. Because Paul seems to be telling us 
that what gravity is to the physical universe, Jesus is to the metaphysical universe, to the realm of being and knowing and ultimate reality. In fact, it's beginning to sound like what physicists and philosophers are looking for, that single unifying equation that explains everything. It's beginning to sound like that. What if the thing they're looking for isn't a what, but a who? What if the thing that explains everything is not a theory or an equation or an idea or an event? What if it's a person? Well, that might begin to explain some things. It might begin to explain why the universe in which we live is personal. I mean, if, if this world in which we live can all be reduced to, to, uh, to physical laws and chemical processes, then how do we explain life? Why do we laugh and learn? Why do we paint and play and pray? Why do we yearn for more and more of these things? That's what I found so ironic about the film, The Theory of Everything. Because if that film is about anything, it's not about physics. It's about people and relationships. It's about romance. It's about friendship. It's about meaning and purpose. There's no equation that explains those things. There's no mathematical formula that equals forgiveness. You don't find joy on a periodic chart of the elements. Scientists can explain life perhaps, but they can't explain love. So that begins leading us now to the second movement in this passage. Paul's not done with his portrait yet. If you think Stephen Hawking is smart, Paul's going to blow your mind in this next passage. In his first section, he's given us the cosmic Jesus who is before and over and in and through all things. In this next movement, he's going to give us the personal Jesus who is present and active in human life and relationships. Let's pick it up at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. Just as Jesus is head over creation He is also head over the new creation, the new community of humankind called the church, the community of faith, the people of God. In the same way that he was preeminent in the universe, he's preeminent in the church, beginning, end, and middle. That word head implies all kinds of things. He's the origin, he's the source, he's the director, he's the responsible one. He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead. Now, what does that mean? Paul is pointing to the end of the age, to the day when when God's people will be resurrected and all things will be restored. And he's saying, through the resurrection, the, the future has invaded the present. By his resurrection, Jesus has brought that coming kingdom into this present reality. Think about a time traveler visiting us from a future day. As long as we're talking about films, let's talk about that philosophical film, Back to the Future. Okay, think Doc Emmett Brown traveling through time, visiting Marty McFly with the flux capacitor and the secret of time travel. All right, don't think about that. Let's just come back to that. But you get the idea. 
Jesus as bringing the, the, the reality and life of the age to come and he's introduced it into our age. Remember what Jesus is like after the resurrection? How he comforts Mary, how he convinces Thomas, how he forgives and restores Peter, how he empowers people with his spirit to go out and change the world? Jesus' resurrection is not just a promise for days to come. It is a reality to be experienced today. We can be made new now. We can begin eternal life today. That in everything, he might have the supremacy. You see, the philosophers of the day, the Gnostics, they were called, taught that there were many emanations and revelations from God. And many people want to suggest that today, that Jesus is one of many messengers or revealers of God. And to be sure, there are other messengers who have pointed us toward God. But Jesus stands alone, Paul says. He is the supreme revelation of God. Keep in mind, no other historical figure, no religious leader in history has claimed to have risen from the dead and given credible evidence to have risen from the dead and be believed by his followers to have actually been risen from the dead. None other in human history. Jesus stands alone. And just so we don't miss the point, look at this next sentence. This bold splash of color flung across the canvas. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All his fullness. Jesus was not partially God. He was not a lesser God. He was not like some mythological figure, half man and half God. He was fully God. Everything we need to know about God, we can see in Christ. Now, that's both a profound and a helpful truth. I think there are times all of us struggle once in a while with God, with his character and his ways in the world. We struggle sometimes with God's judgment or his justice, his wrath. We wonder where he is and what he's doing and what's happening. Uh, like, Like Mary and Martha after their brother died. We sometimes wonder where God is and what he's doing. And why he's taking so long. Paul is telling us that when you're not sure what God is like, look at Jesus. Look at how compassionate Jesus is. Look at how merciful Jesus is. Look how present Jesus is. Look how gracious Jesus is. Every person who comes to him, he heals, restores, forgives, makes new, makes whole, sets free. If, if, if you like Jesus, you're going to love God is the basic idea. In fact, Paul tells us that God will accomplish all these good and beautiful things through Jesus, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven. And with that phrase, we finally find an explanation for everything that is wrong with us and this world in which we live. What's wrong is that we have fallen away from the one who made us for himself and for each other. We have, by our foolishness and our rebellion, we have been separated from the God who designed us and gave us life. It's no wonder we feel lost sometimes. It's no wonder we shake our heads sometimes at what's going on in this world, at how foolish and cruel and even wicked human beings can be to one another. People just like us. 
neither science nor philosophy can explain the existence of evil or offer any answer to it. Sometimes skeptics will point to the problem of evil as a reason for not believing in God. If you ask me, the problem of, even, of evil is one of the best reasons for believing in God. Because when we understand there's a God who made all things to be good and beautiful and true, we understand how there's a power at work to undo those things. There's, there's a reason for what's going on, what's happening in the world. And more than that, there's hope for overcoming it someday. Without God, there is no hope in the face of evil. The best we can do is try to keep it as bay, at bay for as long as we can and hope it doesn't get the better of us when it overcomes us. But in and through Jesus, God promises not only to overcome evil, but one day to vanquish it, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now with these two brief strokes of the brush, blood and cross, Paul reveals to us the humanity of Jesus. See, up until now, we've been talking a lot about the, the divinity of Jesus, the cosmic Jesus. Now Paul brings us down to earth to the human Jesus. Blood and cross. Blood reminds us that Jesus was made like us in every way. He had blood coursing through his veins just like you and me. You don't get more human than to have a pulse. And Jesus did. And when that blood was shed, when it drained from his body through wounds in his hands and feet, he died. Just as we would and will die when all the blood is gone from us as well. If blood reveals Jesus' humanity, the cross reveals his love. Remember, we said Jesus came on a mission to seek and to save the lost. And so he found us there at the cross at our very worst. And he, he saved us there by taking on himself and paying in himself the penalty for our failures. He took our alienation from God and each other and he placed himself as the mediator, the reconciler, who would restore our relationship with God and with one another and this world in which we live. We've all been following Pope Francis' visit to the U.S. these past few days. Last Sunday, in anticipation of his visit, uh, 60 Minutes did a segment on him, and it was a well-done piece. And one of the things it emphasized was that this is a pope for the people. Down to earth was the expression often used. Uh, pope Francis eschewed the papal palace, as we know, and chose instead to live in a modest apartment building down the street. He traded in the Mercedes limo for a Jeep Wrangler. Instead of the revered red slippers, he wears black orthopedic sneakers. And against the wishes of his security guard, he continually leaves the safety of the Pope Mobile and mixes it up with the people, putting himself in harm's way. It's a marvelous statement of himself as a vicar of Christ, a representation of Jesus. Because this is what Jesus did. He came to be among us, to be with us, to be one of us. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the very point of a death, became a servant to all of us, and not only put himself in harm's way, but received harm and suffered death to bring us back to God. 
So blood and cross remind us that the cosmic Jesus who created and sustains all things is also the earthly Jesus who puts all things back together. And so we have this icon of Jesus, this portrait, painted with words and phrases that when taken together stagger our imagination. And we stand back and take it all in. We realize we're looking at a, 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 at a Jesus who is greater than we could possibly imagine and nearer than we could ever hope for. Fully God and fully human. First in creation, first in the new creation. Before all things and above all things and yet for us and with us every day. And so it brings us back to the question helps us answer the question we raised at the beginning. What difference does it make? What difference does it make what we believe about Jesus and how we respond to him? Well, very simply this. If Jesus is who he claims to be, then in him, everything comes together. And without him, everything falls apart. If Jesus is who he claims to be, then in him everything comes together and without him everything falls apart. Which brings us back to that elusive theory of everything. What if the thing we're looking for isn't a what but a who? What if the answer for everything isn't a theory or an equation or an idea but a person? A person who loves us who came after us, who laid himself out and down for us to put back together what had fallen apart. You may not be prepared to accept that yet. That's okay. Hawking is not ready to accept that yet. But if Jesus is who he says he is, then in him everything comes together and without him everything falls apart. What gravity is to the physical universe, Jesus is to our lives and our world, the one who holds and keeps it all together. Now, I realize this is all pretty mind-bending stuff, and you've done well to hang with it here. As we came, as I was searching for a way here in this message, as we came toward the end, to, to somehow make it all personal, to help us feel it in our hearts and not just understand it with our minds. And so that simple phrase, in him all things hold together, brought to my mind another film, another scene, a film called Gravity. Now this scene is so powerful I can't describe it to you, you're going to have to watch it. A team of astronauts are outside their module. They're working on a space station. They're enjoying the view and doing the work they've been trained to do. But when debris from a broken satellite begins hurtling towards them, things start falling apart. Let's give a, give a watch.
of it. <laughs> Explorer, this is Houston. Go ahead, Houston. Mission abort. Repeat. Mission abort. Explorer, this is Kowalski confirming visual contact with debris. Debris is from a BSE stat. Repeat. I have a record. Dr. Stone requesting faster transport. We have to go, we have to go, go, go. Kennedy reports meteorological conditions. Go, go. Houston, Explorer, copy. Explorer, Dr. Stone requesting faster transport to Bay Area. Explorer, do you copy? Explorer, permission to retrieve Dr. Stone. Your go, Kowalski. Houston, this is Explorer, copy. So how scary is that? <laughs> to be adrift in the universe. To be alone in the cosmos. To be cut off from your only source of life and breath and everything else. Without gravity, things fall apart. Without Jesus, life and relationships and human community falls apart. We find ourselves off structure, untethered, adrift in the universe. Now, whatever hell may or may not be like, and no one knows, I fear it could be like that, alone and adrift. Because that's all that's left when we separate ourselves from the one who made us and gives us life and breath and everything else. What difference does Jesus make? The difference between order and chaos. The difference between purpose and chance. The difference between hope and futility. I was tempted to say that Jesus makes all the difference in the world. The truth is, he makes all the difference in the universe. Now, as I said, you may not be ready to come to that conclusion yet about Jesus, and that's okay. We've got a long journey ahead of us. We all have things to discover and decide about Jesus. But now you know what the stakes are. Because if Jesus is who he claims to be, then in him everything comes together, and without him everything falls apart. Not as quickly and dramatically as we just saw, but eventually and eternally. So let's finish with a personal question. 
How is it with your life and your world these days? Are things coming together? Or are they falling apart? Your, your life, your home, your career, your finances, your relationships, your joy. Are you feeling centered and grounded and tethered to a source of life that allows you to roam this big, bold universe God has given you to enjoy? Or do you suddenly find yourself off structure, adrift and alone, hurtling in a direction you don't want to be going? Wherever you might find yourself today, I invite you to take a closer look at Jesus. He's greater than you could ever imagine, and he's nearer than you could ever hope for. Let's bow our heads for a moment. As I said, you may not be prepared to make a decision about Jesus today, and that's okay. But maybe after a few weeks, you're, you're ready. And maybe after considering what life is like with Jesus and without, you're ready to have him put things back together. So if you're ready to do that today in a personal way, I'll invite you to pray a prayer along with me in your heart. If you've already prayed this prayer before in one way or another, just Pray it along again and let it reaffirm your, reaffirm your faith and trust in the Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you for this world you've made and for the gift of life. I admit that I've made a mess of things and that I am adrift without you. Thank you for coming to find me. I ask you to forgive me to put back together what's fallen apart that I might enjoy life to the fullest with you now and forever. Amen.